This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest Matt Johnson calls his new satirical novel a parable about partisanship. It's set in the future, when Earth is on the verge of destruction, and a NASA mission sets off to one of Jupiter's many moons to explore if it could be a place that humans could inhabit. What they find is an artificial ecosystem the size of an American county constructed to look like an American city. It's populated with Earthlings who have been abducted, dating back to 1623, and their offspring. Life in this dome is in some ways a replica of life on Earth, even with products that have brand names that anyone on Earth would recognize. There's a class system in which the privileged feel like they've fulfilled the dream and everyone else is shut out. The political system is designed to favor the privileged. Comfortably sitting at the top are the descendants of the founders. They run the dominant political party. The more recently you've arrived, the lower your status. If you ask who built this town, you're told God and God's chosen. If you probe any further, you will be punished in truly mysterious ways. The novel is called Invisible Things. Matt Johnson has written several previous novels that deal with race. The main character in Loving Day is biracial, like Johnson. The novel Pym is about the only black male professor at his college who's denied tenure and decides to search for the intellectual source of racial whiteness. Among Johnson's honors are an American Book Award, the United States Artist James Baldwin Fellowship, and the John Dos Passos Prize for Literature. He's the Philip H. Knight Chair of Humanities at the University of Oregon. Matt Johnson, welcome back to Fresh Air. It's really great to have you back on our show. You um, read some great personal essays on our show uh, a few years ago, and I interviewed you when your novel Loving Day was published, so I'm really glad we got to talk again. I'd say, how have you been? But I think that would be a very long answer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's just like handshaking. We have to come up with something new to get through the pleasantries nowadays. Yeah. So before we break that down, that how have you been part, before we break that down, let's start with your new book. I want you to read something from the opening. And this is the part about the NASA expedition on its way to explore one of Jupiter's moons. And aboard this, this flight is a sociologist invited by NASA to join the crew and study human behavior in space. So the name of the sociologist is Nalini, and she was chosen among many applicants. Um, So would you read the part? Sure. Nalini had the misfortune of coming of age during an era where there was really one existential question. Would we destroy our planet before we figured out how to escape it? If humanity achieved interstellar migration, it could pollinate the universe with sentient life for a millennia, avoiding extinction via diversification of location. If humans didn't accomplish this goal, the only unanswered question would be which combo of consequences for humanity's collective sins would deliver the fatal blow. Climate devastation, nuclear Armageddon, Systemic xenophobia, violent partisanship, pandemics, man-made or man-fault, they were all strong contenders. The range of cataclysms was dazzling. But as an academic, Nalini was most impressed with humanity's ability to embrace the delusion that everything was fine. Thanks for reading that. And um, uh, a cousin of that paragraph in the novel is a recent tweet. This is something you tweeted after uh, Roe was overturned. And you wrote, this year's theme is apocalypse and this century's. So it sounds like 
apocalypse, the end of the world as we know it, has been very much on your mind. Yeah. You know, it's funny when you say uh, one of your recent tweets immediately makes my stomach drop. (laughs) (laughs) Because I have no idea most of the time what I tweeted uh, because it's just kind of like shooting off. But um, but I guess it's a lot of times it's revealing. Yeah, I've unfortunately uh, been thinking about it a lot, like like a lot of people, you know, I guess all over the world. But um, but uh, America has its own unique flavor of apocalypse. So it's hard kind of not seeing uh, the possible end of things in a variety of different ways. Do you think things on Earth are changing so quickly that if you want to write a politically engaged or a social commentary kind of novel, you almost have to set it in the future because the present is going to be the past, you know, in a couple of seconds and things... I mean, if you just look at what happens every month, you know, politically and January 6th and the hearings and Roe v. Wade and shootings and then the overturning of the New York state law that restricted who could carry guns outside the home. You know, you look, it's just all happening so quickly. Yeah, and I bet you as you were coming up with that list, you were thinking there's a thousand other things. I'm not I know, I know, no, right. I was just, just like the last like yeah. few weeks. Yeah, it always feels like the last few weeks. You know, <laughs> that's part of it. I think one of the first thing I started to notice was that satire, like, and most of the, most of the writing I've done has a satirical bent, um, if if not straight up satire. And that's less intentional. It's more just kind of the way I look at the world and the language that I speak. Right. So th- that's how I usually come to the page. It's the same way I go. You know go to the coffee shop and everything else. That's just how I see the world. But what I noticed quickly, you know, was satire, um, which usually is taking things to their logical extreme, um, to the utmost extreme, and then seeing the absurdity within them and then diffusing them because you're pulling out the larger absurdity and and hypocrisy becomes obvious and everything else. Um, That's impossible for me right now because to my mind, we're basically living in a satire. Things are to their... um, complete extreme in so many different ways to point out their absolute absurdity. And yet that's become normalized, you know? So like it it was very hard to twist things further along to come up with something that gives you enough distance to say, Hey, this is crazy. No, it's already crazy. So you can't do that. The other thing that's happening for me is that because things are moving at this point so quickly, um, is that I, it doesn't help for me as a writer to come up with something where I'm dealing with the specifics because the, the specifics are going to change so rapidly. So, and this also has something to do with, with kind of what I've been interested in. Instead, because of that, is not as much the specifics on individual issues, but in the larger ways that we as a society and we as individuals think about um, our world and these patterns of behavior that that reemerge and reemerge in a variety of different ways. And you know, for me, the biggest one when I was working on this book was was mass denialism, a society-wide kind of choice to ignore certain things because they're just too big to deal with. So on this uh, moon of Jupiter, in which there's a a city that's been created, um, designed to look like an American city. And the population there is the people who have been abducted from Earth and spaceshipped to this moon. Um, the abduction started in 1623. 
And that is, you know, approximately, I mean, that is the period, if not the, it's not the exact year, but it's the period when enslaved Africans start arriving in Virginia. It's also the period, not the exact year, of the Mayflower landing when the pilgrims first come to, um, to America. Um, and the name of this fake city in this Jupiter moon is called New Roanoke. And of course, Roanoke is a city in, in Virginia. So explain why you chose this period of 1623 that coincides with you know, both whiteness and blackness in America from opposite directions. Yeah, the first time um, I jumped into the text, I really didn't want it to be America, um, whether, you know, or North America. Uh, I wanted it to be a combination of, of North America and Britain and France and all of us that were going through a very similar cultural moment. Um, you know, uh, uh, Trump and, and Brexit and the rise of fascism in, in France. But what I ended up finding was that I couldn't distance it um, enough that I could actually still deal with the issues that we're dealing with. Um, and I was hoping to get to something far more universal, but a lot of, you know, what I found comes out of very specific events that happened in our history that we're still dealing with the long-term effects. So once I realized that, I just started to try and look at a version of America that was not 1776 going forward or, you know, from some kind of set idea about what America is or the United States is and started trying to think about where the root of a lot of the, um, our current identity comes from. And so it, it really became inescapable. The 1600s is the period where you think American identity is created and American whiteness and blackness? Well, I mean, you know, nobody wants to hear this. And I, I don't want to say it, but we have a nation that was formed in part on a genocidal land grab and, and forced generational uh, slavery. I mean, it's just like we, we don't have a choice to, but to acknowledge that. You know, one, it's been wild watching people re react to the 1619 Project because... I've seen people go after specifics, uh, you know, and say, well, this wasn't, you know, this isn't accurate or this isn't accurate. But really the, the real criticism that you hear behind these kind of often very petty disagreements about, about uh, historical events is that we can't accept this reality as being the source of our nation, that we can have an America that's not based on our, our ideals, but based on actually, you know, how we, we formed it in the first place. And, you know, because I just like I I can't deal with this. You know, the world that I'm finding myself in, in without acknowledging that a lot of our existing um, prejudices, our you know entire identity, is based on in, in part on the way that we formed. Even the issue of mass denialism. I'm I, I'm scared sometimes that part of the reason that Americans are so good at pretending that what's happening is not happening is a combination of a history of doing this, of being a nation that forms on, on the basis of, of the idea of freedom while also being, you know, tens of thousands of people being slaves and then also being wealthy enough to get away with it uh, for a very long time. Um, and that's kind of what I fear we're hitting the wall about. Your previous novels have focused a lot on race. You're biracial. The sociologist 
in your new novel and one of the crew members are of African descent, but race doesn't much directly figure into the story. But one example where it does that I want to refer to is uh, Nalini, the sociologist, gets depressed when she's on the moon colony and realizes she's basically a prisoner there. And she wonders if she should do what some 19th century West Africans did after they were kidnapped and enslaved and bound for America, which is to jump overboard rather than endure captivity. And the primary reason she doesn't act on that impulse is because she knows her own African ancestors were the ones who didn't jump overboard. What made you think about that? I think about that all the time, uh, really. There's so many times when things get really dark, whether it's on a personal or society level, that the impulse is just to give up, you know? And I think about that when I, you know, want to give up in different ways. Um, Like what I'm enduring is nothing compared to what my African ancestors endured coming, you know, just in the, the sail from West Africa to the States, you know, just that part alone. In addition to the hundred years of of, of violent uh, oppression and sexual assault, and then you know, and, and on my white side and the Irish side, I mean, they you know they came here from a place there where they were being starved to death, and you know they, they managed to come out come out of incredibly bleak circumstances and make it across the sea and and you know live in poverty for a couple generations and um, and thank God for the GI Bill they finally got out, but. Putting it in that context sometimes is sometimes the only thing I can do that forces me to put, you know, my own frustrations and my own feelings of nihilism in perspective because, uh, you know, there's an incredible strength in that, that like people who endured the worst possible, uh, you know, things that we can imagine, I'm sure there's worse, but what we can imagine and we're able to have enough hope, because that's what it is, it's hope, that tomorrow would be better. Um, I mean, we're talking about people whose kids were enslaved from the moment they came out of the womb, right? But they still had enough faith and hope that things could get better. And, you know, if they can do it, uh, I mean, it seems insulting and, and disrespectful to their legacy if, if, you know, if I don't try and do that. You know, in, in Pym, one of your earlier novels, main character is the only black male professor at his university. He's kind of like the diversity hire, which makes him feel like, quote, a professional Negro. Um, did you ever feel that way as a writer or a teacher that you were being put in that category? Oh, sure. I, I mean, yeah. And, 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 and in that now he gets replaced by another one, you know, like there's, um, I, it's, it's an interesting balance, like, uh, being a black author in particular. I mean, there's, there's a variety of different ways that we can talk about American race, but, but the, the relationship between people of African descent and people, you know, of, of European descent is a very distinct dynamic, you know, and one of those dynamics plays out in literature and in literature, historically, the idea has been that black authors hold a uh, mirror up to white America and let them see themselves as they really are. And then the teaching aspect um, on the job, that's, you know, it's very similar. I mean, I was, years ago, somebody told me the hardest job uh, for a uh, 
for a black person to get uh, in the English department would be as a Shakespeare scholar, you know, because <laughs> they have, there's tons of white, of white Shakespeare scholars who, you know, who are working at Burger King. Like, there's no way they're going to hire a black woman for that role, because if they hire a black professor in the English department, it's going to be to teach African-American lit. And oftentimes, even if they teach something else, it's also teaching African-American lit. So, like, there's an idea about a set role that you're supposed to play. And within liberalism, um, the larger, you know, I'm, I'm consider myself liberal, but in the larger kind of area of, of liberalism, there is this idea of checking off boxes, you know, sometimes. And, um, you know, finding yourself that you're there in part so that somebody can check off a box is a horrible uh, feeling um, and something you kind of always have to, to, to balance and, and deal with. You know, one more thing about, you know, in PIM, the professor goes in search of the source, the intellectual source of whiteness, in order to understand the twisted mythic underpinnings of modern racial thought and how this illogical sickness formed in order to help cure it. Um, so what is whiteness from your perspective as the son of a black mother and a white father who you have very light skin and as you told us on the show before, you've often been mistaken for white. So what does whiteness mean to you? And the thought of like, what is the intellectual source of quote whiteness? Yeah, I um, sweet. I've had a bunch of conversations with my editor about this. Um, whiteness to me is not like Europe in a European identity, and it's not simply being uh, white or defined as white. Um, whiteness to me is a bunch of um, assumptions and. Uh, and parts parts of a worldview, and you know the, the, the I make that difference because you know it's not simply that like um, the effects that we we deal with that are like the the larger implications of having a history of white supremacy that they're innate you know that like somebody is born in Poland and immediately has these things. It's more of a set of, of principles and ideas that lean on each other, usually subconsciously, um, you know, not always uh, overtly, uh, that, you know, uh, impact us in ways we don't even realize. You know, one of the things like uh, that I find professionally is that, you know, I've seen, for example, um, black women go into job interviews or, or, or reviews and be judged on their performance and how... Um, you know, effectively they proved their worth. And I've seen white men go into job interviews and, and reviews and have an assumption of competence um, immediately uh, and um, have the information come in all after the assumption of competence is already established, which is a very, it seems, you could see how the people could see they're the same thing, but they're not, you know. Um, and I think things like that are just, they're not conscious. I mean, people, you know, don't wake up and decide to have these prejudices. They're built on intellectual discussions that go back, you know, hundreds of years. And, you know, we all have, uh, you know, in, in this country, digested parts of those discussions, whether you're actively trying to dismantle those things or not. And that to me is, is, is whiteness. It's not simply an identity. It's also a group of uh, assumptions and prejudices which impact how we deal in, in a, a variety of different ways. Let's take a short break here. And then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is Matt Johnson, and his new novel is called Invisible Things. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. 
Let's get back to my interview with writer Matt Johnson. His new novel, Invisible Things, is a futuristic parable about partisanship, satirizing America's politics, and class structure. Johnson has written several previous novels that deal with race. The main character in Loving Day is biracial, like Johnson. The novel Pym is about the only black male professor at his college who's denied tenure and decides to search for the intellectual source of racial whiteness. Your family has a history of escaping. Your great-grandfather fled north to Chicago to escape being lynched. Your mother and aunt fled from the Midwest to um, Philadelphia? Yes. To escape their abusive father. Um, in a personal essay that you wrote for our show, you talked about how your great, you found out about your great-grandfather escaping being lynched when he was 11, but you didn't know the whole story until later. Um, but through your childhood, you had nightmares about that. Can I ask what those nightmares were like? Uh, my mother told me a story, and honestly, I don't know how accurate it was. My mother. Can, can I back up? I just, just want to add one thing that your mother told you that your great grandfather, when he escaped north to Chicago, he used to sit in front of the door, facing the door, with a shotgun by his side in case the people looking for him found him. That's the kind of fear he was living with. Um, so uh, tell us more about the impact that had on your childhood. Well, I, you know, I, I used to have nightmares about that. I, 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 I remember, like one of my most vivid nightmares when I was a kid was that a reoccurring nightmare was that I was in the living room with a family that was mine, even though I didn't recognize them, and everyone was being quiet and staring at each other um, in total fear as the doorknob was being uh, turned. And, and the door was locked, but we could hear it clicking as someone tried to open it. And I guess the person I imagined to me, my ancestor, was sitting on a, you know, an Archie Bunker-style chair with a shotgun uh, on his lap, staring at the door. And, you know, I think, and I don't know if that ever literally happened, but it definitely 100% figuratively happened. I mean, that's, that, you know, my, her uh, grandfather ran away from, uh, from a lynching, that a fight over you know, a mule and some, and some rifles. And, and next thing you know, his entire life was changed. Having that kind of trauma there, like, you know, some people think that's genetic and some, some, you know, say it's just uh, something you learn from your parents, but it was, it was present. And the feeling that everything could go south any minute, you know, I, I remember at one point well, I was living in Philly in uh, West Mount Airy and in our building, my mother was friends with the woman who lived directly downstairs. And it was interesting because the woman who lived directly downstairs um, was Jewish and, and a descendant of survivors of the Holocaust. And they would talk sometime. And it was clear, like at one point they even said, you know, both of them had this one thing in common, that they were mentally willing to pick up in the middle of the night and go, you know, that that was like just a part of their reality, which is just, uh and even, you know, we're, we're talking, well, it's a, not that much difference in time because with my mother's family, we're talking about the 1920s and um, with her family, we're talking about the 1940s. But the impact of that and the way they look at reality was incredible. And it, it also affected the way um, I looked at other people who weren't acting that way. And, and it seemed so odd to me. Well, you know, uh, with your great grandfather, he escaped lynching 
with your mother and aunt, they escaped their father. So one of them was like, you know, a, an, an enemy in post-slave times, you know, this white man who was very powerful and very wealthy and um, obviously was not going to respect a black man. Um, but with your mother and sister, they were just escaping their own father. So what did it say to you that you might even have to escape family? I mean, not necessarily you literally, but that, that, that could happen. Yeah. I mean, just, just like every, uh, unfortunately, every other woman, woman, you know, the knowledge that there could be violent men out there who are going to be protected by the larger society who could kill you um, just because they're having a bad day. You know, that's, unfortunately, that's just kind of normal, you know, but it did have to create this feeling that um, really on a lot, I mean, a lot of levels, it's a larger society level, but on a larger personal level, this larger feeling of insecurity and it impacted us in a variety of ways. Like I, I I was just thinking, I remember as a kid in, in walking around Philly, the biggest thing that told me that spring was coming would be that I would go to walk through Penn's campus through the walkway. This is the University of Pennsylvania. And I'd see white boys walking around in shorts. And this it, it sounds ridiculous, but it would be like 37 degrees, <laughs> you know, and they would be walking around in shorts. And at my first thought, oh, spring's coming. And the reason, like, I think about that is because they felt so protected, you know, as people, as their position in the world, even their physical health, that they weren't worried about catching pneumonia, you know, they catch pneumonia, they went to the doctor and, and, and they dealt with it. Um, they weren't really thinking that the larger world really can have as much control over them as they can have a, on the, even the natural world. And whereas from my perspective, like in, in a predominantly going to predominantly black schools um, and coming, you know, in part from the African-American community, we, we felt much more vulnerable, you know, uh, like we were not wearing shorts when it, just because it was April, if it was 37 degrees, because, you know, and I know this from also been dealing with my mother's health stuff for many years. Like not everybody had insurance, you know, um, when you get sick and go to the hospital, no, people are not treated the same. You know, I've never acted whiter in my life than when I've been pulled over by the cops, you know, for whatever driving stuff, or I've gone to the hospital to deal with my, with my mother's issues. Because I know if they just looked at her like just another, you know, black or brown person, she, there's a good chance she was not going to get the amount of care that she could have gotten. So, like, it impacted kind of, you know, the impact was so broad that, you know, even something like wearing shorts, you know, became a part of that. Yeah. Well, let's take a short break here and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is Matt Johnson. His new novel is called Invisible Things. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Chevrolet, introducing the 2022 Bolt EUV. Chevy's Kelly Helfrich shares one way her team is working to make electric vehicle charging more accessible. You know, not everyone has a 240-volt outlet readily available in their garage. And so we put together the home installation offer because we wanted to cover the cost of a standard installation of that outlet for our eligible Chevrolet customers. To learn more, visit chevy.com slash charging installation terms. Let's get back to my interview with Matt Johnson. His new novel, Satirizing America's Divisive Political System and Class Structure, is called Invisible Things. It's about a NASA mission looking to see if one of Jupiter's moons is inhabitable. What they find is an artificial ecosystem and a glass dome 
that's designed to look like an American city. Did the fact that your great-grandfather did escape lynching and your mother and aunt did escape their abusive father, did that also give you a sense of resilience, that escape was possible, that you could survive and go on to a different life? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the, the, the American paradox, that, like, they were able to create far better lives for themselves. And they were also able to break cycles of, of violence and, and substance abuse and, you know— um, and I, I'm just in, still in awe of, of, of both of them. Um, but yeah, it was that hope to be able to do that. And that, do, does, that doesn't come everywhere, you know. Um, even the belief that you can, you know, do better for yourself, no matter what, you know, the reality is, you know, comes from that. And so, yeah, there was strength in that. I mean, I, I spent my life, you know, most of my early adult life watching my mother fight her way into the middle class, you know. Um, and you know, that was a very American type of hope. You know, I lived in, in Britain for many years and it just wasn't the same thing. I didn't realize how unique that was to hear, you know, that that's just a part of the way we think about things is that those possibilities are out there. What did your mother do to fight her way into the middle class? Well, um, when my parents got divorced, I was about five years old and my mother immediately uh, went to go get her undergraduate degree in social work and worked full time, you know, at the financial aid office uh, at Temple University. And really, about the same time this happened, she also uh, had uh, a complete physical collapse. We thought it was a stroke at the time, but it was the initial impact of of having of being diagnosed with um, with MS, multiple sclerosis. Uh, which also like made it so she could only work so hard or this or the symptoms would come back. And, you know, with no financial really support outside of, you know, herself and uh, MS and no larger family. I mean, her sister was there very supportive, but, you know, the large family was not around. She was able to get an undergraduate degree. She graduated, had a graduation on a Saturday and Monday morning she was in grad school. And then she went from a series of jobs after that that were always a little better than the last one. And it was never a question of like the exact place she was going to. It was always to a better life, you know. And I, it had a massive impact on me because I just thought that's how everybody does, that that level of, of work uh, and that level of hope and that level of focus on the future was how you, you, you know, are supposed to live. And I, mean, I wouldn't be here right now if that hadn't happened. She died a couple of months ago, so you know I'm really sorry. And uh, I, I, I know you took care of her. You moved her wherever you moved. Um, you know, toward the end of her life. Um, so, do you think of yourself as having given back to her what she gave you? Well, she gave me life. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> like, it's I, I couldn't give her life. I mean, that's sort of impossible. But. Um... No, I mean, it's, honestly, it's just never enough. Like, I know that it's never enough, right? And I can accept that rationally. But it's never enough, you know? So I think it's so hard watching somebody you love deteriorate over um, a slow period of time, right? And it's it's insanely hard seeing somebody you love and, and, and just disappear overnight. And it's just utter shock. Um, but watching them, you know... Um, kind of disintegrate for in front of you over 15 years this was no picnic either you know and uh I, tr- I, I tried to do everything i could um it's funny we talked about last time we talked was with loving day 
and when we talked directly and um and that was really like as somebody from philly getting to talk to you was a bit of a big deal it was very exciting and uh when the the audio came out like you know it was a big you know uh, uh, life event and i spent the entire day uh clearing out my mother from one studio apartment in a uh, in an elder care home into another studio apartment, um, cooking her dinners for the week, um, trying to get, get her to get rid of some of her stuff. And I, you know, I, I left, uh, you know, after working from like seven in the morning to like seven at night, covered in sweat and dirt and exhausted. And, you know, it's still my mom. So we're like, you know, arguing and laughing and, you know, emotionally it's draining. And I got in the car and like a lot of times when I got in the car, I just started screaming, which was how I would, deal, you know, because it was so emotionally, uh, exhausting. And I would just scream and curse at MS and, you know, and then I, I turned on the car and connected my, you know, my phone and listened to the interview, you know, and that's kind of how, um, it's been. I mean, I've been very fortunate to have a really fun, uh, career, both as a writer and as a teacher. Um, but as all this has been happening, I've had this other uh, part of my life, um, which has been about trying to keep uh, my mother uh, upright as new things kept collapsing um, beneath her. And, you know, so I'm, I, it's really weird for me not to have that at this point. You know, it's been two months, um, but I really don't know how to deal with that, you know, um, because there's, there's just I spent so much of my energy uh, in in taking care of her that it's kind of, yeah I, I I haven't come to terms with it yet. Do you feel any sense of relief that um, I don't know how to put this without sounding? Cause, but, I know, right? But 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 right? No, I know because yeah. when you've watched somebody slowly die or you know. Uh, just like regress over a period of years. And, you know, your mother had dementia too. So, um, you know, that figures into it also. And she had the MS. It was, I'm sure things were really rough at the end. But it's hard to, I think it's hard to allow yourself to experience or to claim the relief that you might even think you're experiencing. Yeah, you know, it's weird because I've thought, like, like it is hard even framing the the question, are you happy your your parent died or what? Like, and obviously that's not what it's asking. And I knew I was supposed to feel guilty about the relief. And honestly, I didn't. It wasn't the relief because, like, I was just tired. Like, you know what I mean? Like, but, but towards the end, because my mother had dementia, she would call um, about eight times a day. And so sometimes I'd be in class teaching and I see the phone and it's ringing and, you know, it's her. And, like, every, you know, I walk out of the room and it's ringing. And it was just kind of like, you know, she didn't mean to do it that way, but it was, it was like very nerve wracking, you know? Um, so there's a relief of that, but you know what? Like the relief is so quick, honestly, in my experience, like it was like, I, uh, the relief was not just, Oh, I don't have to do the work anymore. The relief is I'm not going to fail in being able to handle the amount of work that's being presented to me, you know, here, you know, and that was the, the relief was also fear. You know, it wasn't just tired. It was, you know, this is happening. I can barely hap- barely deal with this. What happens when it gets worse? Like, am I going to be able to handle it? Can I handle it financially? Can I handle it time-wise? Or just so, will I have the answers at all, right? And so 
when she when she passed, at that point, she was in this nursing home. I'm in Portland. She didn't know anybody in this nursing home. It was just like she couldn't leave. And then with um, COVID, I mean, I spent COVID going with her to chemo, you know, um, which was incredibly scary, you know. I mean, it was just like pre, you know, like it, pre-vaccine, and she's you know got cancer, and you know they, like we're leaving the house. I mean, it's just like, all these nursing homes across the country were having these epidemics. It was really scary. Uh, in some ways, I'm thankful for because I got to see her, but still, you know. And and you had written that you were afraid, afraid you would um, die during the early days of COVID because of your comorbidities. So it probably was even more frightening to feel exposed during that period. Yeah, it was it was really terrifying. But like the when she was gone, there was a sort of relief like I made it to the finish line. But then the immediately like the loss, there was a couple of things I did not expect when she died. And one of them was that the relief was not as prominent in my head as the person I had lost. And it wasn't just the person I had been dealing with for the last 10 years. Once she left, like the next day, it felt like the version of her in my head of this, this woman whose body had betrayed her, who was completely collapsed, whose mind had betrayed her, uh, you know, and stuck in a chair for the rest of her life and unable to think pro- her way through things or remember things. I mean, half the time when we were doing chemo, she didn't remember and then all of a sudden it was flashback to this woman who I grew up with, you know, this woman before all of this, right? And like, I hadn't really talked in, that, in my mind to that woman in so long. And then bam, like she was like reappeared. And it's really, I never heard anybody describe it that way with, with those long-term illnesses. But like, I missed the person who existed, but I really missed the person who was, when she was all of, of who she was, you know, and that, that was the biggest feeling and kind of shock. You're lucky in that respect, because I think for a lot of people, what they remember for an extended period of time is the person who was nearing death for an extended period of time, you know, because you've been so exposed to them and it's so upsetting and it kind of imprints on your brain. And it, it often takes a while to recapture who the person was before they went into serious decline and got sick. Well, you know, one of the first things I did after she died was, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm more of a mess, I'm a mess in general, but more of a mess at that time, was I went back um, to home to Philly. And, uh, you know, we used to live at South Street, Eighth uh, and South, and we used to, you know, that's far on the east near the Delaware River, and we would walk sometimes, like when I was in high school, um, over to the art museum and then around, which is, I guess, I don't know, it's a couple miles, um, but it was. Uh, we loved the city and we loved walking around, and there was always stuff to see, and you know, um, it was. We just, you know, that was something we would do on a Sunday. It was free, you know, and um, she never had a lot of money. But it was just also just glorious. And uh, I, so I went back and I, I, you know, I wanted to see some family members, definitely. But one of the biggest reasons was I wanted to find that person that had been there. Um, and that really, it really brought it back to life. And it was kind of the thing, people were like, well, why are you going? And I couldn't kind of put my finger on it. But um, just walking those, those pathways again um, brought a lot of that back. 
Let's take another break here, and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is Matt Johnson, whose new novel is called Invisible Things. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. So we were just talking about your mother and how your mother had MS and in her last final years was, you know, in a pretty steep decline and how how you took care of her and how, you know, exhausting and emotionally, uh, emotionally exhausting it was. Um, While that was happening, your wife was diagnosed with a brain tumor that uh, seems to have been treated successfully. Am I right about that? That yeah, 100% successfully. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad to hear that. So, like, as difficult as what happened with your mother sounds, you add your wife's, um, you know, trauma to that, and uh, that's, a, that's a really difficult place to be. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, I guess we're, we're all living our own little difficult places, so it doesn't seem like that much at this point. But, yeah, I... I um. At one point, uh, yeah, it it just seemed like the the larger world was just kind of falling to pieces in general, both on a, an independent personal level and on a on a massive level. But it also been like fortunate too, you know. Like uh, my wife was able to come out of this one hundred percent fine, which we did not think was going to happen for the first couple months that it was going on. Um, the trauma of that experience was still, you know, very present, um, but the experience itself, uh, we were able to move past it. And then, you know, with my mother, um, similarly, like, um, yeah, it's just put things in, in perspective, you know, that uh, all these things I thought were incredibly important when I was in my late twenties turned out to be uh, almost meaningless, you know, things like what? Well, like, you know, I've always, I love books. I always want to write books and it was, you know, that books were my whole life and, you know, just something as simple as becoming a father just immediately changed all that, you know, like, um, yeah, I mean, most of my, if, if most of my personal life is about being a dad now, you know, and I have three children. One of them is a, a undergrad and, and two of them are, are finishing up in high school. And, you know, that, I mean, it just doesn't remotely compare to, you know, um, my own like artistic you know, <laughs> expressions and yeah. And I, I think like in some ways it makes the writing easier, not time-wise, but it takes a lot of the weight off because it doesn't matter. It's all going to turn to dust anyway. So, you know, I can have fun and not feel the weight of the universe on my shoulders in, in that regard, which sounds very dismissive for somebody who's just got, came out with a book, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> it, it does, uh, you know, it does make life daily life a lot better. As a father, when your wife was dealing with the brain tumor and your mother was dying, did you try to not let your fear and anxiety show to your children? Um, no, I, you know, my dad is good at that. Um, my dad doesn't like readily show emotion and I'm just not capable of it. So what I've tried to do is come up with a healthy version of letting my kids know how I'm doing. Um, I One, I don't want to set up unrealistic goals for how to deal with things. I want them to know their dad is very human, which, you know, they very much know. And I, like, I think, like, trying to find a way to not do the, the model of men kind of hiding their emotion um, 
because for me, it doesn't work. It just turns to anger, you know, it turns to frustration. It gets bottled up. It goes sour. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my kids saw me deal with stuff and, and it, like, I think, um, hopefully they got something positive out of it. Well, Matt, it's really just been great to talk with you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Matt Johnson's new novel is called Invisible Things. He's the Philip H. Knight Chair of Humanities at the University of Oregon. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll talk about the Proud Boys and their role in the attack on the Capitol. They took the lead in removing police barricades and instigating breakthroughs in several locations. My guest will be Alan Foyer, who covers extremism and political violence for The New York Times and helped analyze Proud Boys court documents, text messages, and videos. He also covered yesterday's January 6th committee hearings. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brugger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Boldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, Joel Wolfram, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross. <laughs> 